Hello and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps talking to you from sunny Austin, Texas. I'm here this week with Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Hey, John. And Robin Beret. Hi, Robin. Hi. We once again have no Brian Baycheck. Poor guy's under the weather. So um, hopefully he'll be back in the next uh, week or so. Um, but we do have, once again, Jacob Renderconnect. Hi, Jacob. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, if you didn't listen to the last episode, um, we had Jacob on to talk about synodality and bishops and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but today he's on with our other guest, Aaron Kidd. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Um, and they're going to talk to us about their book, uh, which is called Putting God on the Map, Theology and Conceptual Mapping. Um, and we'll talk about what that means here in a minute. Um, but first, we wanted to get to know y'all a little bit. So just uh, briefly, Jacob, remind folks who you are and what you do. So I'm a systematic theologian. Uh, I work on church stuff and ecumenism stuff. Uh, but currently, I work as the director of the Pastoral Institute at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, just down the road, where I oversee a BA program, mostly uh, for young men preparing for seminary, also some lay students um, and who were really glad to have in the program, and then a master's program for lay ecclesial ministers uh, serving, working to serve in parishes eventually. Uh, and, and Jacob knows Ryan and I from our Marquette days, but also so does Aaron. Um, so Aaron, who, who are you and what do you do? Hi, so uh, I'm a feminist systematic theologian. Right now I'm an assistant professor at St. John's University. I'm teaching courses there in Christian theology and in gender studies. Uh, but my work is in theological anthropology, political theology, theological method, all of which are in play in this book that we're going to introduce today. Right on. Um, so we're going to do uh, our guest questions. We already did them with Jacob. So if you want to hear his answers to these, you can go listen to our previous episode. Um, so Aaron, you're in the hot seat for these. Um, hey, Robin, what's your guest intro question? Well, now I'm rethinking it because it's hard to imagine anyone who owns like formal pajamas as, as, as ever being guilty of a fashion faux pas. But um, I'll, I'll press on. And uh, I just want to know what is your um, most memorable fashion faux pas? It can either be like one event where you made a very poor like sartorial choice or it can be like you went through a phase like like John Heaps where. Um, well, you made poor choices for a long time, long periods of time, consecutively. We're still, we're still waiting for not just about up. fashion. <laughs> uh, so first of all, a long period of time, I don't think I should be judged for my fashion until I was 30 or so, because I had no money. So everything was from like, you know, garage sales. Uh, but the worst faux pas, I think, is something that actually happened my first year of teaching at Marquette uh, when I was still in the doctoral program there. I realized when I was in front of the classroom, as I reached up my hand to write on the board that I could feel my blazer untucked from my pants, which meant that my blazer had been tucked into <laughs> for an entire lecture. <laughs> and no one had told me. And I don't know if it exists, a blazer that ought to be, but I want to be very clear that this is the kind of blazer that should not, like it was long. <laughs> <laughs> it should not have been tucked in, but apparently it was. So I think that's probably my word. That's rough. Yeah, that's a rough <laughs> one. Uh, hey, Ryan, what's your question? So, uh, so Aaron, what I want to know is um, what is your most memorable 
which is not to say uh, most severe, but most memorable uh, failure in the kitchen. Yeah, so I've had so few successes that they all the failures blend <laughs> in together. Uh, so really, it's hard to think of one that stands out. But I will, you know, I have one that's recent that's uh, in mind, which is that I uh, often start baked potatoes in the microwave for a couple of minutes just to get them started uh, more quickly. And I was making dinner last night, and I thought, like, I was already patting myself on the back for being brilliant. I thought, I'm going to put this under the broiler when it's in the oven instead of baking it. Get that, you know, outside skin really crisp because I want a baked potato to be a potato chip on the outside, mashed potatoes <laughs> on the inside, right? And so I thought, I am a genius. I have been watching Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. I have been watching Great <laughs> British Baking Off. Like I am revolutionizing the baked potato, and then I set it on fire. <laughs> I had to scoop the very, I had to run all of the fans, the bathroom fan, the exhaust. I had to open all the windows, and then I had to scoop out like just a little bit of mashed potatoes from the center of it, which was my dinner. You, you know, when you've I got asked good- Jacob that question, he also told a story about nearly burning his kitchen down. So truly, you guys were meant to be co-editors together. That's right. Are there failures that aren't fire, really? <laughs> <laughs> you really, you really haven't failed unless the, the upstairs neighbors are texting you to make sure everything's okay. Well, right. But it's like anything else. You just throw it back in the oven or like fry an egg and put it on top. Like how else can you ruin anything else? But, you know, it's like, oh, fire. <laughs> there we go. That's terrific. Um, my question is, what is your favorite bar in the world? Uh, this is tough because I like bars. And uh, we all met in Milwaukee, so we had a number of options to choose from. But the River West Public House in uh, River West, Milwaukee, uh, absolutely my favorite bar and one I really, really miss uh, because I live in Brooklyn and there's just hardly anything to do here. Uh, so I miss Milwaukee, uh, but it was what I think the second cooperatively owned bar in America. I think they got the oh. idea from a bar in Austin. Um, I, uh, there's been more founded since that bar, uh, but I was, I think I moved to Milwaukee about the time that it was founded and was in walking distance for most of my time there, uh, and really loved it. It would open in the morning, uh, on Saturdays and we would go and have Bloody Marys and play board games. Um, here in Brooklyn, bars don't open until like 4 p.m. Lunch starts at 4 p.m., right. <laughs> you know, so very different time schedule. So I loved the way in which the River West Public House in particular was this kind of community place. It was like the neighborhood's living room. You could hang out there at any time. And they had lots of board games, as I recall, right? They did. They did. I mean, we would bring our own highly specialized Euro games, but they did have their own collection. Knights of Dunshire and such, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cones of Dunshire. Excuse Ones me. Ones that haven't been translated yet. Cones of Dunshire. Excuse me. Yes, my mistake. Um, well, that's it's about that's... the cones. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah, you know, I never made it in there. I don't think I drank for such what? like a small portion because I didn't. You know, I didn't drink you till look, I turned thirty. Like somebody who would have gone well, there. Well, true enough. Yeah, true enough. And especially when I right when I moved to Milwaukee, I was I was in full hipster dandy mode. Um, but uh, no, I never made it into that place. Though I had you know, many an hour spent in the Palm. Mm-hmm. That um, was minor. Yeah. Well, that was, yeah, you were on the south side. That was, that was like a 15-minute drive for me, you know. Which in, Mil- which in Milwaukee, <laughs> it might have, it's prohibitive. Yeah. You, for we those who've never been to River West, it's, it's, um, it's, sort, it's sort of like if you took um, 
Portland and shrunk it down to the size of like five square ten, blocks. Ten city blocks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's an annual bicycle race around uh, River West, which you can get extra points in if you get a tattoo. Yeah. It's, yes. a, fun, it's a fun place. It's a fun every place. time more competitive bikers enter the race, because it gets more, more competitive and more and more famous every year, they enter in these new kind of extra credit challenges to effectively protect the ability for the local community to win the race. The tattoos, <laughs> uh, you could like volunteer <laughs> in various places. Um, they're really, really trying to keep it from being an athletic tournament. Yeah. Uh, but it was great. It was inspired as a kind of take back the night. Uh, it was a way of protesting. We are going to keep this neighborhood safe. This should be a place that you could bike at all hours. And so we're going to bike for 24 hours in a row and get tattoos. Naturally, yes. There was a Marquette team one year, wasn't there? I don't know. Maybe. I seem to recall our friend Eugene getting a tattoo as part of that at some point. Maybe I'm yeah, wrong about that's that. That's correct. My pastor was covered in River West 24 tattoos, <laughs> which is maybe, I think, the most Milwaukee thing I've ever said. That's really amazing, yeah. We, we used to live on, like, the western edge of town. I mean, literally, you walk two blocks, and you are no longer in Milwaukee. And at the peak of rush hour, my wife's commute to downtown was 12 minutes. <laughs> and it Milwaukee. felt like it was forever away. Yeah, because Milwaukee is amazing. All right. Um, so let's get into this. Uh, I sat in on, because um, I was his TA, Bob Masson's Ronner class um, when he was, uh, he, did he, I think he had a, 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 at least a working draft of his book or maybe a finished draft of his book at that point. Um, he had a draft in our class the year before, so that's great. Okay. Yeah, it, I don't think it had been accepted at Leuven yet, but it, he was doing the final, um, the final sort of version for Peters during that class. Um, and so, and 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 I'll let you guys talk about what what that has to do with your book. But um, so I, I've had the sort of pleasure of getting to sort of hear peripherally the the development of of, of your your edited volume here. Um, but could you rehearse sort of its history of how it came about and um, sort of what made you want to edit a volume on this topic and, and what the topic is? Um. Absolutely. So I love that you started off by mentioning Bob Masson because really the inspiration for this book was personal uh, in the sense that uh, Jacob and I and a few other Marquette folk had uh, encountered this work that we're calling collectively conceptual mapping and we're following bob and doing that as well as some other scholars in the field uh, through his coursework and through his writing uh, if you know bob or if you know his work he's a bridge builder he's somebody that wants to get people at the table together and he's somebody that wants to do a lot of translation work in getting people who disagree to at least be able to learn each other's language um, and so Bob had really been using it to, uh, had been using this work in cognitive linguistics that we've been calling mapping that refers to the way in which different domains or realms of thought are connected. He had been using this really to analyze theological rhetoric and analyze theological discourse. Well, what are people saying when they're saying something? So for instance, he looked at the disagreement between the U.S. bishops and Elizabeth Johnson. He looked at disagreements uh, over reading uh, James Cone's metaphorical connection between the cross and the lynching tree. Different uh, Ronarianisms and why they can't agree with each other. Exactly, exactly. What is making these different camps read the same text in two different ways and read them so differently that then they can't speak to one another despite having the same source material? Um, that's not just, you know, a, 
a problem, a kind of superficial, shallow problem of language. What this work in cognitive linguistics and conceptual mapping allows us to do is really talk about the deep structures and patterns of people's thoughts that are leading them to talk in different ways and to potentially really misunderstand one another. So we were inspired by this work. Jacob and I had really um, found it useful, I know, for thinking about both of our works, your work and especially kind of uh, ecumenical dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, you know, more interested in even what this meant about more fundamental questions about our ability to talk about God. Uh, and also there's, uh, this work has not taken place in isolation just within linguistics alone. Uh, conceptual mapping is something that also has impact on how we think about who we are as meaning makers and uh, language creators. And so there's a lot of interesting work going on in thinking about uh, cognitive science and the brain's developments and patterns, thinking about uh, the bodily basis of human meaning and also the cultural basis of meaning making. So for me, it was really something um, that opened into a lot of other sort of conversations and questions and theology that I was interested in, issues of embodiment, issues of identity. And so the book that we gather together isn't confined to just that original interest in thinking about linguistics and theological rhetoric. We've got chapters on uh, how we talk about the evolution of human beings as sacramental creatures, for instance. We've got topics on the evolution of um, human beings as people who... Uh, think about ethics. We've got a number of different, I'm trying to think, we've got people who are using it much like Bob Masson originally was using it to solve controversies within the mm -hmm. church or across different um, denominations. Jacob, can you help me out? What are the, sure, some of the other got, variety? Um, we've got a lot a, of people There's a doing really it. interesting chapter on the Eucharist that ends up yes. saying that the, one of the things that's happening when Catholics and Protestants talk to each other about the Eucharist is mm -hmm. that they're running the metaphors in opposite directions. Um, then there's a chapter on the good in um, sort of Thomistic Aristotelian kinds of frameworks and how that helps us maybe talk about altruism as an actual possibility and not just a sort of thing that we pretend exists. Um, there's a chapter on uh, how we talk about frozen embryos and how the ways that we talk about frozen embryos changes the possibilities for the solutions that might be available to them. Um, coming out of a, this, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith uh, famously said that the solution there, that it cannot be resolved, um, which is a very odd thing for Catholics to say about a moral problem, that there's just no answer, right? Um, and so... Well, and then Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> We've please. got this great chapter. As I say, Jason Roberts' chapter takes this sort of meta-analysis of it where he says uh, this entire aspect of human being that makes meaning by making connections between these domains of thought is itself uh, maybe an element of what it means to be made in the image of God, i.e. that we're always kind of creating. And so we're approaching this topic from a number of different perspectives. Um, and the utility, I think, across these chapters, uh, it's really broad. We've got people, uh, like we've already mentioned, in, in sacraments, in ethics, in ecumenical work. Um, anthropology. Anthropology, absolutely. So we're hoping that this can kind of inspire or at least inform other people in theology and philosophy and religious studies to recognize how helpful some of this work is. So, um, so, so you're, you're springboarding off of the, the, the connection that uh, Bob Masson made between um, this work in linguistics and, and in cognitive linguistics uh, and, and working it out in terms of conceptual mapping. So briefly, what is that work? What, what, what is conceptual mapping? What, is the, what are the sort of roots of it in cognitive linguistics? Sure. So 
I'm going to come into it through Bob's book. The title is, is uh, Without Metaphor, No Sniping God. Uh, and so I think in some sense, his fundamental insight is it's not that there's knowledge of God that can be had apart from this, which we then sort of have to talk about in this way. It's that our knowledge of God is itself because all of our knowledge is embodied, right? So um, the, the conceptuality we're working with here comes out of the work of a number of linguists. Um, that, own, that sort of whole cognitive linguistic thing comes out of what, Aaron, help me remember, it's AI, um, brain studies, link, classical linguistics. Is there a fourth? Uh, evolutionary science and neuroscience. Yeah, right. Um, and so for the linguistic part of that is people started going around looking at how languages function to see if there were in fact universal human structures, time, space, distance. And it turns out that some things that we thought like directionality that were universal turn out not to be. So this is my favorite example of all this is that um, most languages uh, have egocentric engagements with directionality. I can say to you, John, hand me that Nalgene bottle and you'll know what I'm talking about. There's a very few number of languages that do all directionality in base of geocentric models. So one of them, I think it's pronounced Kuku Yimuthur, which is a, or it's, it's, it, which is a Northwestern Australian, North, Northeastern Australian language, I think. Um, but it does all of it based on a 64 point compass direction. So I'd have to say something like, you know, move, I have no idea which direction North is right now, but I'd have to say something like, please move the, the bottle to, uh, in the North by Northeasterly direction. Um, and even there in that language to say, how are you? You say, what direction are you? What, what, right. Mm. Um, and so there's basic ways of structuring the world that are different. And you can only think in terms of the way that you think, right? In terms of the way that the world is actually constructed for you by your own engagement with the language and culture and all the things that you have, which breaks down the sort of objective, subjective dis divide in really helpful ways. Erin, uh, do you want to jump in here? You, you look like you... Yeah. Oh, oh, no. I mean, I was nodding along. But exactly. So when we're talking about this insight in cognitive linguistics, this thinking about how we connect uh, and make meaning by bringing together different realms of thought, um, you know, we've sometimes used the word metaphorical to describe this, but it's something that's much more deeper than what we would call a kind of surface level metaphor. This diamond is as pretty as a star or something. What we're really talking about is a, a deep patterning um, of how we think and a deep kind of structure. So you mentioned this way of thinking about directionality. Um, and it's, it's, it's so deep that it's, we might consider it, um, you know, in a certain sense, it's pre-linguistic. In fact, some of Lackovan Johnson's work is, is that there's actually non-propositional image schemata, right? That we actually think of our worlds in terms of, say, front or back, or we feel a sense of balance. Um, these aspects of human experience aren't things that can be translated into some sort of um, propositional thought. So we're talking about like really, really, really deep understandings of the patterns and structures of our movement in the world and the way that they give rise to how we navigate it and make sense of it. Um, and some aspects yes. are universal, some aspects are cultural. Is that, yeah. I was just to say, affection is warmth is always a good place to start with this. So um, several of you, in fact, all of you, except for Aaron and I seem to have kids, um, and your children's first engagement with you in some senses as a warm thing because you're all mammals. Um, and so this seems to be a, a universal human engagement, in life, but, it's not because, but it's because we're mammals. Like it, it comes out of the sort of, basic pattern of human of human engagement with our children and so affection gets mapped to warmth in 
pretty much every human language. And so you can't think about in some ways, there's, and there's a whole set of sort of ways of thinking that develop out of that, out of that, that grow out of that metaphor. So I can say, he's a cold person, right? Um, but the ma- it doesn't necessarily work in the other direction, um, right? So you can't necessarily, so some of these things are unidirectional, right? Affection is warmth. Warmth isn't necessarily affection. I can't say that's a very friendly oven. Or, um, and, and if you do, we're going to be a little concerned. No, right. Yeah. And, or you're just confused. Also that. I think when my baked potato caught fire though. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think so. So this example is great because it shows how we're not just talking about things that are merely linguistic. Um, if these were just wordplay that you could have this kind of engagement, but there's a reason why um, affection is warmth metaphors are compelling and they make sense. And we don't even realize the metaphors half the time. Like, she's cold or something. Um, and the other one seems odd. It's because we already have a kind of built in, uh, way of thinking that's patterned according to the metaphor. So the metaphor is already familiar to the way that we're, that our brain is structured. And, and I say brain there because it's not just the patterns of our thought that we're talking about, but there's indication that we're also talking about the patterns of, of sort of neurodevelopment. Um, but it, we're talking about actually neurons making connections here. And so this is a patterning that shapes, you know, our embodiment all the way down. It, it arises from our embodiment as upright bipedal mammals, but it also then in turns is something that becomes, you know, effectively hardwired in the way that we think as well. There's this idea that neurons that fire together, wire together. And so connections that get made repeatedly get stronger. Mm. Uh, so, so that's sort of the um, embodied cognitive linguistic territory. So then where does the mapping come in? So mapping is a really, it's a way of, within that whole conceptuality, it's a way of talking about what's going on in particular cases of human conceptions of things. And so um, at its most specific, and we use this language in a couple of different ways, but we can talk about different patterns of mapping, ways that metaphors are structured. Um, at its most simple, um, and maybe Aaron, you and I can go back and forth on this, so it's not just one voice, but like, so I'll take simplex, which is the sort of most simple version of this, which is based equivalently to a mail merge. So you have a sort of pattern, that's your, your Word document that you've set up that is dear name, blah, 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 blah. And then you have um, data, that's your Excel file that you're merging into your, to, to, make the, um, to make the invitation that you're sending out to all the people, right? And so you have, for example, when I say something like, um, uh, Soren is the son of Stephen. I have a pattern and I have some beings and I put them and your brain runs them together in such a way that you all know the relationship between Soren and Stephen now. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's a simplex blend. Yeah, simplex is almost like a formula and variables. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't even think about it as a metaphor connecting two things. Um, but it gets incredibly complicated and you can talk not only about very, very more, you know, very, very more, more complicated individual mappings, but then also clusters of mappings that we refer to as networks. So for instance, in my own research, I've looked at uh, God is Father. Um, here's a metaphor that does actually seem to go in both ways in the Christian tradition. Um, in other words, we're thinking about God in terms of fatherly, uh, you know, affectionate, paternal ways. Uh, fatherhood becomes the kind of metaphor that's foundational to uh, the early church developing a 
uh, Trinitarian language uh, when we think about father-son relationships. Uh, sonship becomes a metaphor for understanding all Christian relationship through Jesus to the God the Father. Uh, then we're also calling the priest father. Uh, we've got this like cluster of connections working together, uh, connecting God as father in all sorts of different ways. Well, so we can actually use that kind of complicated mapping and dissect it and, and actually uh, sort of show the receipts for uh, Rosemary Radford Ruther's claim that to call God as father is to also make the father God. And so we could go from very, very, very simple to also really, really, really complicated networks that are mapping domains of meaning uh, in ways that affect both domains of meaning. So saying God is father affects how we think about God, um, but it also, as many feminist theologians have highlighted, it also, in a certain sense, deifies the patriarchy. Um, so we can go super complicated and then think about not just those as metaphors that people say or even think about, uh, but, you know, as Lackoff and Johnson have this phrase, you know, it's like we live by the metaphors. And, and so this is something that shapes who has power in our communities. This is something that shapes literally how we move. Um, um, when we bow, you know, <laughs> who we give authority to, who stands where. Uh, this is something that shapes our entire world, really. Um, so we can go from very, very simple to very, very complicated. Hmm. And then it can be helpful in a couple of ways, not only to sort of make visible the sort of unseen movements that are happening behind the scenes of, of a particular set of thoughts, but also sometimes to say, um, okay, so like I, I mentioned earlier, the, the chapter on Eucharistic uh, metaphor, why is it that Protestants and Catholics have such a hard time understanding each other when they try and talk about this thing? Or in my work on, um, on concupiscence, sin, and uh, justification, why is it that Catholics and Lutherans have such a hard time talking to each other about these things? And it turns out it's because they have fundamentally different metaphoric conceptions of what sin is. They're not... They're not they're not arguing about what concupiscence is, but one of them has to say that concupiscence is sinful because it's not what God desires. And the other one has to say that concupiscence isn't sinful because if it were, baptism would be ineffective. Um, and so sometimes just uncovering those differences allows the conversation to focus on what's actually at stake in them rather than the sort of repeated pattern of misunderstanding that can happen. So the original question was why mapping? And I think we've identified maybe four different ways that mapping is going on. So when we're talking about the different ways in which meaning is, is created according to these initial connections, and, and the language here is used is that one thing is mapped onto the other. So in the simplex network that Jacob described earlier, we're mapping on these particular people we know onto this general father-son relationship. Um, but you know, we're also hoping to create maps, um, larger maps of the theological discourse, but then also secondarily maps of this new research in cognitive linguistics for people who are new to the field. So that um, hopefully, even if you think what we're saying now is confusing, <laughs> that this book would introduce you to the ideas and make them something that you feel comfortable you know, navigating this terrain yourself. And then in a fourth sense, while cognitive science religion is really getting off and booming, there hasn't been a lot of theological engagement with this research. So in a certain sense, we're playing on the metaphor of putting God within this conversation and putting mm -hmm. God on the map, so to speak. So I think I, I got four there. There might be more. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> so we're using what, the term in both kind of technical and, oh gosh, I hesitate to say metaphorical ways. But <laughs> <laughs> 
um, but so yeah, that's what's going so, on. And so you mentioned also you mentioned also that you um, do work do work in theological method, and and so I'm curious the the ability to use this descriptively seems like patently evident. Um, is there a way in which it can guide um, normatively the generation of theological thought? Um, you know, beyond just saying sort of, okay, this is how the ideas have played out as a matter of fact in the past, but as we continue to think into the future, can it play a kind of guiding role? I think so, absolutely. Um, for one, and Lackman and Johnson show this in their work and engagement of philosophy of religion. I take this up uh, more seriously in my chapter in the edited volume. Jacob and I also mention it briefly in the introduction. Uh, but to some extent, we can talk about some ways of talking about God that in a certain sense are false or um, so for instance Lackoff and Johnson make this point about thinking about transcendence we very naturally think of um, the good as high um, we have all sorts of metaphors that are connected to this so we learn to stack things when we're little and we think about more being high and, and almost every positive valuation uh, that we have is high so you have somebody being high class and low class and you don't need to know anything about our class system to know which one is better and we use in other words this kind of verticality with um positivity um, with uh, surplus all kind of mapped together. And so it's natural then for us to have all of these sort of individual linguistic metaphors that think about God as on high. Um, we also tend to think about things in terms of boxes and categories and containers. So if I'm a monotheist who holds the classical theism and I know that God is not an object in the world, then it's natural for me to think that God is just an object outside the world. And so we have all of these ways in which um, are very normal embodied patterns of thought that help us get around the world and that in most senses are very useful to us and have been evolutionarily speaking, uh, make us think that the better God is, um, the further away God is. Mm. And, and so here's something that we can identify and name using this resource. And we can also recognize that there's a kind of contradiction here. We can almost identify our own failures to be good classical theists and to develop ways of speaking God. In other words, we can see how our metaphors have gone awry. So first of all, I think this work helps us actually just hold a mirror to how we're speaking about God to see if it is indeed how we're intending to speak to God. So I think in that sense, in terms of theological method. In other words, am I actually using, you know, speaking of God in ways that violate my own commitments? I've created God, you know, and um, Catherine Tanner is great at highlighting, you know, the way that we think about God competitively. So have I bought into this? Um, and, and, and this is where I really get interested in the topic. Lackham and Johnson show that so much of this stuff too, as soon as we start naming God or the good or the transcendent as something that's sort of high above or outside of us, this creates a sort of structural problem, which then um, I become even worse <laughs> in comparison. So if the good is high above me and I'm down low, uh, in other words, we develop this sort of structure that is based on a fundamental lie um, about the universe and about God and about the value of the human person. Um, and, and so a theological method that can recognize that this is happening can then develop some criterion here, which is that I need to talk about God in a way that doesn't lie about what kind of creature I am, that doesn't lie about how I make meaning, that doesn't lie about the sort of value of the material world. 
And so then I think we have a lot of work to do in theological method. And we can talk about really sort of prescriptive uh, work in um, conceptual mapping. Uh, for more, I have a book on this forthcoming in 2020 from Lexington uh, Fortress Press so called Doing Theology from the Gut. And what I'm really trying to say is that the, you know, the body itself, which I'm sort of um, whimsically referring to as the gut, uh, does have prescriptive things to say about how we do theology. Well, when that comes out, uh, shoot us an email and we'll have you on. We'll talk about your book. Hopefully I'll have some other cooking fails before That'd be then. good, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have new intro questions by then. But. Was, there's an article that folks might find interesting. Aaron, you probably have this on the tip of your tongue. I don't. It's um, the Born Idolaters argue, uh, article. You remember the? Yes. Do you remember um, who wrote that off the top of your head? Aku Vesela, Jonathan Jong, and I, bless them, I can't figure out, remember who the third author is. Um, I could pull it up, however, though. It's a great essay. Um, it, while you're looking that up, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit. So one of the, the other ways that this can work sort of as a rule for how we go forward is that in the, in the conversation about how it is that humans think about things, there's this whole group of people who are thinking about how religions work without taking the claims of religion very seriously um, and sort of trying to argue that religion is oftentimes just the sort of end point of a bunch of, um, of uh, animal and developmental and um, evolutionary pressures. It's, you know, it's better to think that there's a tiger when there's not than it is to think that it's just the wind when it's a tiger, for example, um, because you live longer. And that, you get the sort of arguments about overactive agency. Exactly, right. Stuff, right. And yeah. so this article that Aaron's pulling up, uh, one of the things that it does is it looks to see how it is that religions themselves talk about this thing and how, in fact, the whole argument around idolatry is in some, is um, sort of aware of the things that religion is being critiqued for and in and then asking us to do a new kind of theology that both takes the cognition seriously but also the claims of religion or Aaron's own work on the subject self-split does the same kind of thing and critiques Lakoff and Johnson and others who tend to say, well, the subject self-split is just explains away why we think we have a soul, for example. Um, and therefore we don't have to think anymore about it. Um, and so the essay is, um, it's Jonathan John, Christopher Kavanaugh and Aku Vesela, born idolaters. And it's in, um, Oh, Goodness. Let's see if I can do this. This really should be Jacob with the pronunciation, but uh, the New Zeeschrift for Systematische Theologie und Religion and Philosophy. <laughs> Did I get that? Yeah. Is it passable? Yeah. It, it's recognizable. Um, it, it is in English, however. Um, so I, I think, in a certain sense, if we're going to say, look, I believe that uh, Christian theology ought to be uh, strained by something like classical theism. Um, simplicity and transcendence and all of the things that's entailed there. And I also think that we believe for classical Christian reasons that the human person has an inherent goodness and dignity. Um, that some of this work actually then allows us to identify where traditional Christian theology has gone awry in preserving those ideas. And, and so this is really where I think it's most useful for theological method. Um, is for saying, how do I speak in such a way that best communicates that? How are the patterns of some of our traditional ways of thinking about God actually in violation of some of our most closely held beliefs? Um, so I find it incredibly useful in that way. Um, 
there's a huge debate going on in cognitive science religion right now, whether or not this sort of natural inclination that Jacob mentioned to think of ourselves as having a soul or to think about God being an agent in the world, explaining things is either proof that God exists or whether it's proof that God doesn't. And, and you can imagine how this case could be made. Ah, I've got a God-shaped hole. My, my you know, entire embodiment uh, makes it so that uh, I see God and this is a gift from God, God's self. Uh, and you can also see how somebody might say, ah, it's a sham, you know, your monkey psychology is making you imagine things. And, and so Jacob and I, in a certain sense, have kind of distanced ourselves from that conversation. Um, in other words, if you're asking about sort of prescriptive claims, I don't think you can make that kind of one-to-one. Here the brain is like this, therefore God is or is not like that. But I think we can, again, hold this method up or hold this you know, mirror up to what we're doing and allow it to help us analyze our own theological discourse and also help us to understand whether or not um, the patterns of our thinking and speaking about God are actually in line with what we're trying to say. That that seems to be really helpful. I mean, you know, when when Elizabeth Johnson, you know, wrote "She Who Is," see, it seems to me that was the thesis of the book. It's not that no, God's actually a mother, not a father. It's that the uniformity of masculine language obscures the nature of transcendence and actually turns God into a sort of merely imminent, idolatrous sort of thing. And so it's it's not up to the standards of belief that classical Christian theology holds out for itself. And so she's, she's kind of retrieving the, the more feminine metaphors in order to kind of like shock the theological imagination back into focus um, to be able to see the, the respects in which we're being um, unfaithful to our own commitments through the uniformity of our metaphorical language. But like, Everybody misses the argument because they get so so uh, caught up in the structure of the metaphors. So it's, it just seems to me a project like that could benefit so much uh, in terms of the clarity of communication from a theoretical apparatus like like the one you and Jacob were describing. Um, that really that would really let the sort of central thesis of works like Johnson and others to um, to be put forward in in um, ways that are per- perhaps uh, easier to keep track of. Yeah, and Aaron's already mentioned it, but the chapter in Bob Masson's book that where he's, um, where he's getting into the, dis- the argument between about Quest for the Living God, so different book, yeah. but between Johnson and the um, USCCB Committee on Doctrine, I think is really helpful precisely in that regard because what he's doing is saying, look, <laughs> this is what's happening in this argument this is where the parties are missing each other. And in fact, he's critiquing both of them in different ways for sort of not paying attention to the ways that metaphor is actually operative. Um, and he has a really great phrase for saying that um, for when something is, for when we talk about when we say that something is literal, we don't actually mean literality most of the time because we're still speaking metaphorically. But um, Aaron, do you remember the three things? The last one is factually the case. It's um, whether something is appropriate, something else, and factually the case is the sort of what he means is his translation of what Aquinas means by propria, right? Um, and it's not, I don't remember. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. Um, you should all go read Bob Masson's book and specifically that chapter on the Johnson uh, USCCB thing to get into that engagement. Yeah.
Yeah, but I think, you know, and, and going back to sort of she who is, I absolutely part of my attraction to this work when I was sitting in on Bob Masson's course as a first year doctoral student was that it seemed to me to be a helpful way to kind of clarify some of the fundamental work that's going on in, in the work of Elizabeth Johnson and Ruther, which I think I misquoted. It's Mary Daly who makes that famous claim about God being father. Um, but a number of feminist theologians who have done this work in metaphor, you, most of them are working with Ricoeur. Um, and who have been sort of famously misunderstood and, and yeah. you know, these kind of controversies developed. And, and particularly for me, somebody who has been kind of dialoguing with analytic philosophers of religion too, I appreciate this way of kind of breaking down those arguments because in a certain sense, and, and this is part of, I think, why Bob does kind of critique Johnson in that book, is that in a certain sense, there's still such a breakdown in communication based on kind of traditional or, or you know, perennial problems in theology along um, sort of continental analytic divides, along um, misdefining or using metaphor and analogy and literal and all these words in different ways, uh, along Protestant Catholic and even just intra-Catholic in terms of camps and interpreting Aquinas. We've got all of these different problems going on. So that even when I think, like Ryan said earlier, that Johnson's claim and she who is is fairly, um, you know, I mean, in a certain sense, it, it seems sort of obvious to me, like, of, of course, um, that it could actually seem bewildering and even offensive to other people, precisely because all of um, the ways in which those kind of tensions and axes make conversations difficult. So I think really there is a way in which you can use this work to, you know, provide the receipts um, and to clarify what scholars like Johnson are doing for people who might not otherwise be compelled by the work because they're not somebody who's compelled by Ricoeur or Rahner or the people that she's depending on to make these claims. Well, and, and you know, in, in that work in particular, you know, and she admits as much in the introduction that it's a work really made possible by a really prolonged and in-depth study of Aquinas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you can walk, you can do this with students where you can sort of walk through the structure of her arguments and just sort of almost match them up point to point with arguments that Aquinas will make in the Prima Pars. Um, and it, 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 would just, it just seems to me, even pedagogically, it would just be so helpful to be able to have um, an actual methodological structure for that comparison rather than just sort of descriptively gesturing back and forth between uh the the context of johnson's work and the sort of traditional context that she's Mm -hmm. retrieving because the nature of the retrieval is so counterintuitive for most people that as you say it it is so often and so easily missed wait i wish you had written that chapter for our book (laughs) (laughs) there can be a second volume well, I mean, I, I'm... Volume I'm, two, electric boogaloo. Electric <laughs> I'm interested, I mean, I'm interested in that question because, I mean, it relates to my own work with Lonergan in a different way uh, from, a, from a totally different, you know, theoretical apparatus. But, um, but I mean, you know, we, we all taught in the introductory course, the Intro to Theology course at Marquette, and, in which we would give students the sort of... Uh, where, did, where did Johnson do that? Was it in, like, Christian Century or something? Right? Commonweal, yeah. She gave the, the case for God. She, yeah, exactly. The, the sort of all of she who is and four pages, and students every semester are just bewildered by it. Which and I'm always disappointed in them because I, I, you know, my my reaction is always like, I've just been teaching you the metaphysics that this is trying to put forward for two months, <laughs> and you have no ability to recognize that in what's being put forward here. 
and it and it's just very clear to me that what you guys have, are are doing is explaining that that gap in comprehension. And if you can explain that gap, then hopefully we can we can uh, work more effectively to close it. Robin, did you have a question? I do. Yeah. So. Um, in the parts of the book I skimmed, which was not much of it, and it was mostly the chapter on the embryos, since um, it's a topic I actually know quite a bit about because my supervisor has published on embryo adoption mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit. Um, and uh, you seem there's there seems to be a differentiation made between like conceptual and metaphorical categories. But when we talk about conceptual categories, both in that in the in the sections of the book I skimmed, and also in this conversation. It's dominated by metaphor. I guess like when, when you're talking about conceptual mapping, what are the underlying assumptions? Like are there non-metaphorical ways of thinking that, that we use and, 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 or are, are all of the conceptual categories um, metaphorical? So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about how, like what, what else do you map, you know, essentially? Sure. So, I mean, the definition of a metaphor in this whole conceptuality is a cross-domain mapping. Right. So you can speak entirely within a, within a domain, but once you go outside that domain, then you have a metaphor. So when we say the temperature goes up, that's metaphorical. When we say the mercury in the thermometer goes up, it's not metaphorical. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, and though, though, um, Domains can be generated through the sort of um, accumulation and uh, uh, I'm struggling to think of the metaphor, but through the accumulation of metaphors falling into sort of habitual accepted usage, right? Yeah, they can. And so, um, well, Aaron, Aaron wants to critique that a little bit, but... Metaphorical expressions can. So if you're thinking about like Ricoeur talking about a metaphor dying, that's fine. Um, so like pedigree uh, is a word that used to compare our um, family tree, <laughs> another metaphor. Yeah. Uh, but we hear the family tree metaphor. I'm like, oh, right, the branches, I can picture it. I see why right. that looks like a tree. And I might not always think about it when I use that expression, but you can show it to me. But pedigree was, you know, um, what is it? A goose's foot. Yeah. Um, now that's not live to us. Part of it is because it's in a different language. It's French and then sort of bastardized and then made into one word. Um, but, but that's actually like just the surface of what we're talking about. Um, because in this conceptual mapping work, it, what would actually be rarer is something that's a literal statement. Almost everything's going to be metaphorical. And in fact, um, depending on who you're reading in the thought and in, in the sort of field, everything is metaphorical. Because even if there aren't something that's sort of linguistically metaphorical, um, it's something that's, that's it's going to be a sort of belief that's based on some sort of cross-domain mapping sort of neurologically and in terms of our thinking. So if we go back to something like affection is warmth, um, there, you know, almost, you know, for lack of in Johnson, the only things that are non-metaphorical would be like very primary experiences, like warmth. <laughs> um, it, that would be non-metaphorical. But as soon as you start talking about it, effectively, the way that our brain works, we're always learning things by comparing them to older things. Uh, so that effectively, all of our human thinking becomes kind of patterned on our sort of most basic 
um, you know, they use the, the metaphor of building blocks, but are sort of right. basic interactions with the world. So even when there's not linguistic metaphors that we can analyze, they're going to say that our thought is structured by some other structure. Right. And this so, was my, this is sort of where I was trying to gesture is that, that um, domains are made out of metaphors. Yes. But materially yeah. made out of metaphors. Um, and which is why this process can be generative of the social construction of worlds of meaning. Absolutely. Right? Um, Absolutely. That's sort of what I was, was trying to get at. So it's not as though there are sort of these fixed domains no. um, perennially that are then in some instances put into metaphorical relations, but rather that domains are generated through a metaphorical process. So like Jesus oh, Messiah is Bob Masson's favorite double scope blend, right? And Messiah is clearly... <clears throat> part of the reason that Jesus is Messiah is so complicated and interesting and so productive of other later things. It's what we call double scope blend is that there's a real clash that happens between the story of Jesus and the pre-existing notions of Messiah. But if we go back into Messiah, there's three or four or five or eight sort of things that go into building that domain. Um, and so, yeah, so I mean, oh, go sorry, go on. I was going to say, you know, <laughs> go, you go, you go. I was just going to say, and because of that. How thing, did the editing process go, y'all? It was like this, but via email over a long period of time. Lots right. of Dropbox. So much um, Dropbox. Um, Bob likes to talk about these, I was just going to say, in terms of tectonic blends, because it sort of gives a sense of how the world shifts under it when these things, and such that new things are actually possible. That's, that's all I wanted to And I was going to add to that, that like a lot of the um, work and metaphor that that's percolated into theology over the past few decades has focused only on those events that are kind of clashes. Jesus is Messiah. Um, and what this work allows us to do is certainly analyze that um, alongside people like Sally McVeigh, you know, who have also been doing that work. But what I am more interested in is almost the kind of boring structures of our thought. So it also allows us to describe under the banner of metaphor, conceptual mapping, much, much, much broader ways that uh, our way of talking about God could be structured by our basic experiences as infants navigating the world. That would be a metaphor. We're effectively mapping something more complicated and abstract onto the structures of thinking and moving that we've developed in simpler ways. And, and that, in a certain sense, for the figures that we're reading is also a metaphor. Um, and, and so I'm, that's where I'm really interested in. How are the sort of boring ways even we talk about God um, built into our understanding of the world? And I think, to go back to Ryan's point earlier, is that, you know, one of the reasons why our students are so bewildered maybe by somebody like Elizabeth Johnson is because God as Father has become boring to them. It seems obvious, right? Um, and this work allows us to actually show, no, this is actually an interesting metaphor that's non-necessary that's coming from your experience. Yeah. Yeah, or even the ways we talk about God is, right? I mean, we've all had the experience of teaching in theology classes, trying to get students to realize how weird it is to say that God is. Because if we want to take seriously that God is not a thing in the world, then even that has to be, you know, not in the way that we think we're, we, we are habituated to thinking of ising. Hmm. Right, right. Thinking like noun verb is a metaphor. <laughs> it patterns our world in a, according to a certain structure that we've developed for both like evolutionarily and like child development reasons. And, so everything and of course, is God, God is just <laughs> yeah. another word for God. So. <laughs> right, right, right. God is the is, is, of is part of the definition. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, um, well, so there's a, there's a therapeutic quality, it seems to me, then, 
um, for this, for, for theology specifically, which has this problem of, uh, of entitative disproportion that's built into the, the structure of its speech. Because the thing it's talking about, as we've said, is not a thing in the world. Um, and so be, because our, our habits of thinking are worldly, um, that, that, that worldliness tends to um, sort of over-determine even our, our ways of doing theology. So, that, so it's, it would seem to me by having this, this tool in the toolkit, um, it, it allows us to kind of therapeutically chasten our own habits of thinking and speaking with respect to God. Yeah, and to be more precise about what we mean when we say that which is received is received according to the mode of the receiver, right? So we're paying attention to what the mode of the receiver actually is. All right. Well, um, it wouldn't be a systematically episode without a little Aristotle. That's right. Um, well, the, the book is called Putting God on the Map. Uh, and the subtitle I can never remember for some reason. Putting God on the Map, Theology and Conceptual Mapping. Uh, and you can get it from Fortress Press. Um, I have our treasures old and new. And I'm doing a very lazy version this week. So I apologize, everyone. But I have one book that is both the treasure old and the treasure new. And the, um, the treasure new is that there is a, a relatively new critical edition of Schleiermacher's Christian faith. It is now a two-volume set, which seems eminently practical to me, is carrying around my own one, old one-volume set was just ridiculous. Uh, and the, the new translation uh, and, and critical edition is put together by Tyson Kelsey. And um, I peeked at it just a little bit. I haven't been able to spend a lot of time with it, but it seems, uh, it seems really quite terrific. Um, and my treasure old is Schleiermacher's Glaubenslehre, um, because uh, people talk about Schleiermacher a lot based on um, skimming the introduction to the Glaubenslehre and um, then being fed a prejudice one way or the other by their, um, their grad seminar instructor. Um, you should really go read the book. It's real long, um, but it's real good. The introduction is uh, famous for a reason. It's very interesting. The way that he um, sort of threads the needle um, in a situation really overdetermined by Kant's critical philosophy um, is just eminently creative. Um, if you can actually understand what he means by the feeling of absolute dependence, you're head and shoulders above um, most people who have these kind of surveys of systematic theology. Uh, and then when you get into the body of the text, what you discover is that Schleiermacher has written maybe the most systematic, systematic theology in uh, the history of the Western canon. The whole book is organized around one idea, and the entirety of the um, Christian dogmatic loci are organized and speculatively explained in terms of it. Um, and while I have many a theological gripe with Schleiermacher, and I have also some philosophical ones, um, you will be uh, edified to no end by really spending some time with that book. And the good news is, is that you have a new critical edition and translation with which to do it. So that's my Treasures Old and New um, Lazy One Book Edition. Aaron and Jacob, thanks so much for being on our show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was great. Um, and I'm serious, Aaron. Uh, when, when your book comes out, shoot us an email. We'll have you on. We'll talk about that. Will do. That'd be great. Um, okay, so you can find the show on Twitter at SystematicPod. You can shoot us an email if you want at, uh, not at, uh, at the uh, email address systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, 
Uh, I probably, when you're hearing this, still haven't put us up on Stitcher and other things. My apologies. One of these days I'll make it happen. Our music at the intro and outro are both uh, track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor, and your Creative Commons license. And as always, be attentive. Thanks. Bye. Bye.